Welcome to the greatest pod where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I am producer Bill. And today we are going to talk about um, are comic book movies the greatest for comic books? You know, and that's it's kind of a simple concept. It seems as though comic books are so ubiquitous and the concepts therein seem to have encircled the globe and taken over everything and taken over pop culture to the point where they've made an enemy of Martin Scorsese. But <laughs> <laughs> but are those um is that giant cultural impact affecting comic books and how is it affecting comic books? I'll leave it at that. I think arguably it is, but maybe not in the way that people think, um, because, I, you know, they're for the longest time. It, it's probably an old hat adage by now, but the people who watch the movies don't read the comics. And so you would think that there would be this strong correlation. You know, superheroes are dominating our culture in a way that they never have. So, you know, American superhero comics should be at their apex and they just aren't. So, I mean, I feel like that's maybe the uh, the framework on which we need to build this entire conversation. Well, here's the problem, Bill. They are. Uh, the sales for 2021, uh, even for inflation, are better than even 1993, which was uh, the heyday. Um, in right dollar? Now, let me, in I dollars. have to ask, though, in dollars or in, or in volume? Because here's the other problem. In, I, yeah, go ahead. So you said in, in dollars. Here's the other problem, though. The prices of comics have outpaced inflation. So in 1993, which is the heyday of, of comic book sales, or I don't know, maybe 1992, whenever Jim Lee sells yeah. 6 million copies of X-Men, right? Around There's a couple things going on. Number one, the average comic book is like a buck fifty, whereas now the average comic book is like $4. And that that growth has outpaced inflation. Number two, the book market, the trade paperback market has completely exploded in the intervening 30 years. Like that wasn't even a market in 1992. So that's something that's worth taking into account here because really that's a resale market. Dollar wise, it's huge. It's a bonanza, but it's not that there's more work being done to fill out both the bookstores and the comic book shelves. It's really just selling the same product twice. And number three, there are more legitimate publishers right now, but a lot of what they're doing is licensed product. So again, it's a question of like, are the movies good for comic books as an industry? Maybe because you're seeing, you know, umpteen Star Wars comics and Power Rangers comics and God only knows what other comics, but also it's like the work that comics once did of inventing pop culture is not really happening in the same way, one might argue. So all just yeah. things to keep in mind. I, you know, I, I would be curious how it breaks down, like overall dollars. I believe you, Ron. I believe that yeah. completely, that maybe the, the overall dollars that comic books are making as an industry right now are bigger than in the early 90s. But I think well, there's a it, lot more nuance to it. Well, there is. And Ed brought up earlier... Um, um, uh, the popularity of manga, which has had uh, uh, in the last couple of years like a 107% increase. Sure. Um, but still, um, they sold 825.7 million uh, volumes of, uh, of comic books in 2021, which is um, 
uh, like a ridiculous rise from 67.8 millions in 2020. And it's the first time sales rose above 800 million ever. Wow, that's um, really interesting. So you're telling yeah. me there was like a thousand percent sales volume increase in the past two years? It's insane. Um, in fact, um, if you even look at just the, the, the numbers, you're, you're looking at from 2000, uh, um, 2016, they made about 800 million. And last year, they made 2 billion. Hmm. Um, so, and, but here's the thing. For some reason, in 2021, it went from 1.28 billion to to 2.05 billion, approximately. Um, and and that's that's what's interesting to me is is that in in literally a year, you almost had a hundred percent increase. Like it went up to like 65, 70 percent more than it was the year before. Which man is that I'd, pandemic? I'd be- is that- I was going to say, I'd be curious to see the actual accounting on this because I, you know, there, it feels like somebody's fudging numbers somewhere, which also the, t- the timing of that is interesting because Warner Brothers, which is technically the second biggest comic book publisher in the United States, just got purchased in a huge big money acquisition deal. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's an incentive to be fudging numbers. This is actually wild. We hadn't talked about this before re- recording, but this is some, this is some weird shit. Yeah, but what I want to know is uh, what is the share that Marvel and DC have of the giant iceberg of this these unilateral comic book, quote-unquote comic book sales? How much does DC and Marvel have? I suspect it's a lot, but how much is independent publishers and, you know, the, the image uh, uh, part of the game and things of this nature, Dark Horse, you know, all the, all the sub-publishers like that, and then, like, self-publishers, how much is those lower-class people? Well, we got uh, Marvel's at 31.7%. Uh, DC Comics is at 27.1%. So you're talking about 58, almost 60% of, of it is Marvel and DC. See, that's uh, low. If it, like, and I, I'm not, I guess I'm not basing that on anything other than my assumption, but like yeah. for the big two to only account for 60% of the total market, I mean, that's low. And, and and you know what's interesting? Well, okay, well, we can talk about the other ones. There's Image that's next, Boom Studios, IDW Publishing, then Dark Horse, Viz Media, which is mostly um, Shonen mm-hmm. Jump and, and Manga, which is 2.6%. And right. then some other smaller ones, Dynamite, Aftershock. And then it also has a 10.4%, which is all others. And I'm like, that's interesting. So I, I assume it's like they're so small, they're just piling them all together. But they showed someone... Aftershock, for instance, only has 0.8% of that. Um, and what, Well, I know that I like Scholastic, sorry, sorry, Ron, I was just going to say, I know that Scholastic, which is not traditionally a comic book publisher, actually has a big chunk of like bookshelf sales because they publish a lot of, you know, they'll do like the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, mm-hmm. which aren't published necessarily as comics, but they are comics. They just are only sold to kids in bookstores. So, like, that's a big chunk of the market as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just what you know what's. I mean, I know we're not. Actually, let's let's talk about this. What's interesting to me is what this means is there's forty percent available to people trying to just do something. I think that's yeah. really interesting because if, if you get one percent of eight hundred million, 
it's eight million dollars. <laughs> sure, right, you know and and saying that's what I that's what I was saying before when I was like, I find it dubious that like yes, they yes, Marvel and DC have to take up a big part, but if the industry is this big, it's got to be other publishers helping that out mightily. Forty percent is mightily, and it's like because when I go into the stores and I, I look at some of the comics. Just as a dumb old man stumbling in Rip Van Winkle style. Like, I don't hang out in comic book stores. I don't hang out outside of comic book stores smoking cigarettes, tripping people or whatever. I'm not a ne'er dwell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was raised right. No, but honestly, I, I don't hang out at comic book stores too often. I buy my comics judiciously, usually over the internet, usually for my iPad. And then occasionally I'll go into a store and go, I want Daniel Warren Johnson's Do a Power Bomb. Because I mm-hmm. want to support him in that way. I want Jim Ruggs, uh, uh, you know, um, rampaging Hulk or whatever the fuck that thing was he did. I want I want that Hulk omnibus, you know. Uh, so that's kind of how I shop for my comics. But when I go into the stores, it's always like this weird time lapse. I'm like, oh, there's a gray Hulk with Wolverine claws. You know <laughs> what I mean? And there's, there's oh, I come back in and like uh, XYZ has happened. But a lot of the changes I'm seeing are trying to make the comics more like the movies in these mm. subtle ways. That's a thing that you notice in a time lapse. And I don't know how good that is necessarily for comics. I kind of want to throw that out to the panel. Uh, I don't have a, that too many specific examples, but it just seems like sometimes I'll just see the costuming and then certain characteristics. They'll be like way more movie-like than they were. I think the bottom line of that concern, though, is like corporate synergy. Yeah. And I think there absolutely is a bit of, a, of the tail wagging the dog where somebody along the line, especially for Marvel, right, is going to say, well, there's hundreds of millions of people watching these movies. When they show up to buy a book, again, to use your wording, Ron, even if it's 1% of those hundreds of millions of people, that's still millions of people, right? If they show up to buy a book, we need to give them something they recognize. And from like a corporate marketing standpoint, they're right. But also, that's just not the relationship that we're used to between comics and movies. Exactly. In our lifetime, comics have always been what Ron is describing with G. Willow Wilson on Miss Marvel. It's like a maverick creator has a weird story that they want to tell and they want to fit it into the fabric of this wider sci-fi fantasy universe that's been created. And they tell it and it works or it doesn't on its merits. Miss Marvel worked on its merits. And then they adapt it and sort of refine it and try to make it better. We have not really seen, and I would argue that there's never really been a success of doing it the opposite way, where something is created, refined, whatever you want to say. Something is created for the screen, and then the comic books pick it up, and they're like, all right, let's take this and run with it. I don't know if there's a success story where that's happened. This concept that like something that looks good in the cinema has to look good in the comic books or vice versa. It's just really silly to me on a lot of levels these days. It's oh, yeah. like, I think there are so many comic, uh, comic book costumes that look better on a comic book person than any suit that you could devise. So just separate them. They're not the same thing. You're tr- trying to be comic book accurate in these days and times. If it's more so than say Daredevil's suit, you know, mm. d- just mm-hmm. imagine it like way more comic book accurate. So he's just got his nuts out. He's got some trunks on. He looks like a boxer. Right. That's he's just wearing a lycra gear. body glove at that point. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't, I, I'm just saying, I don't, sometimes people expect movies to adhere so much to comic books, but I think it sucks bad the other way. 
Because then you got these artists drawing super hella overly detailed uh, costumes, trying to be like movie costumes. You know what I mean? And you get you have I don't know. It doesn't seem like it helps comics. And last things last, what works in a comic doesn't necessarily work in a movie. I think one thing that hamstrings. I'm I'm going to bring it up again, but hamstrings Batman movies is they don't want to just show a panel of blackness. They don't want to show blackness and a fist coming out and a and an explosion and stuff. They don't want to show you the experience of being fucked up by Batman because it's not that really cinematic. It's no, really it's comic booky though. Oh yeah, I mean that whole I that whole aesthetic of like the the splash page or the the you know the splash pose is very hard to make work in a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I people talk about how Avengers Endgame with the the climactic battle was like a splash page come to life, but it's like you had the feeling that it was. You know, there was the feeling that, okay, maybe that's similar to something like that George Perez would draw in some giant crossover where he's got 50 characters all occupying the same space. But, like, I'm not even going to say that it wasn't, but they had to earn that and set that up. And, like, the way that it worked in that movie is just so different than the way that splash pages work in comics, where, to your point, Ed, like, Batman on a roof getting ready to whoop some guy's ass could be this amazingly dramatic moment when it's rendered on the page. Whereas in a movie, it's just a guy hanging. It's just a guy standing (laughs) around. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like most of the time when movies try to emulate those moments of he's perched majestically on the side of a building, you're just a little bit like, why is he just standing there? What's (laughs) What's he doing? (laughs) Which is a microcosm of just, there's different languages. There's different visual storytelling languages to these two things. No, that's true. Yeah. And, uh, and, but it's also interesting because, you know, some of the best movies have taken from some great comic books and, and, and the problem becomes, does this become, you know, a, a terrible, the worst kind of, I don't know, snake eating its own tail thing. And we get bad comics and then we can't get good comic book movies in 10 years or whatever after they've run out of, you know, material that they actually want to use uh, for movies. Well, I think what's really interesting about your stats that you brought up, Ron, I'll say it again. The fact that Marvel and DC are just, you know, only 60 percent, just above half of that market. I guarantee you in even the 80s, which was the ramp up to the big comic book boom, Marvel and DC had to be commanding upward of 80% of the market, you know, Mm -hmm. so they're losing ground, which to me just means that maybe there are more experimental, you know, industrious, non-corporate comics that are being made. Uh, by the same token, you know, Boom and IDW are publishing licenses of everything, like I was saying before, from Power Rangers to G.I. Joe to Transformers to all this stuff. I, I, I'm not really interested in that stuff. I, you can make the argument that maybe that's a good place for them to workshop storylines that could go into TV shows or movies. But I think the whole other part of this is like, Image continues to just put out all kinds of experimental stuff. You look at like Kickstarter and crowdfunded books. All of that is really experimental stuff. Now you've got Netflix, you know, owning Mark Miller's Miller World stuff, which is all original concepts, hacky though they might be. And that's a different conversation. (laughs) I 
I guess my bigger point being Mar- what you're talking about but might very well happen to Marvel and DC. That the tail wags the dog and then the snake starts eating its own tail and <laughs> you have some sort of three-animal hybrid. <laughs> I think if you know superheroes and comic book-inspired media continue to thrive, all the studios are going to increasingly look outside of the big two for properties. That would yeah. be... That would be where I think things go in the next five to ten years. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and here was an interesting thing that I saw in um, March uh, 2022, just a you know few months ago. Uh, the number one books were all their top five, basically, um, were all Image and Boom. Ooh, interesting. Uh, yeah, so like uh, something killing the children is, uh, I believe, an IDW one. I believe that uh, already has been optioned for a series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Spawn is number two. Um, Which Scorch. is long in development movie, but go on. Yes. <laughs> Forever. It will never, it will never get done. Uh, Scorched, Saga, and then Little Monsters. Um, I don't know about Little Monsters, but I do know Scorched and Saga also both optioned already. So, like, <laughs> I think that speaks to my point. Yeah. Well, and the, okay, but see, th- this is where uh, I'm going to bring us back to the to the point. I think that I kind of wanted to talk about big two is mm. is not actually big two is winning this content thing for right now because they have a seventy year backlog. But as you can see, everybody's gaining on them like hellhounds. You know what I'm mm. saying? You know, and I'm just thinking. How much better is it when you can, maybe this is impossible, but, but maybe there are people out here talented enough to see their vision as a comic book and use perfect comic book language and then get with filmmakers and make a reasonable facsimile and not be so precious about it because they've owned it the whole time and they are in control of it, but, and they're picking their collaborators because these comic books are so successful. They don't just have to go to Jim Schmucky over here and and bastardize their product they can be they can wait for scott derrickson they can wait for you know what i'm saying uh joe hill or whatever the fuck they can wait for these people to help them or uh to to realize this vision and be excited about realizing this comic book vision be excited about the challenge of doing a graphic novel uh you know and getting that tone but marvel they hand you a stack of animatics tell you what you're gonna do Mm -hmm. and 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 then the your power is to go back to the source material and look at which storylines you can you can cobble together and combine from this content mill they've had for 75 years. On a certain visceral level, I'm still excited about that because I'm a fanboy to the to the death. But if I'm a creator and I'm 25 right now, I know which one I want to do. I want to get with the graphic novel dude. I want to make my own graphic novel. I want to make my own thing, own it all the way through, get paid two or three fucking times. I don't mm-hmm. want to, as we've said many times on here, be like our man who made up the Winter Soldier, sitting up in there with a check in his pocket for acting in it that's bigger than the check in his pocket for creating the fucking Winter Soldier. No, nobody want to be that anymore. In our in our uh, universally lambasted, our comics, the greatest conservative uh, art form, uh, in that episode we were talking about, there aren't going to be a lot of trans and black and black and gay and gay and, and, and differently abled and neurodivergent and all this stuff you want to see represented. If I was one of those, and I am, I would not want to take my product to Marvel and get screwed over. 
I would want to take the long route of owning my idea and seeing if I can get it up on, on the ground. So at the big two, you're going to see the black Batman, gay Superman. You're going to see all types of experiments with characters they own rather than new ideas. Mm. Yeah. And, and let me say, Ed, uh, you, the numbers might be bearing that out for you because uh, before uh, the, the little break that we had, the little technical issue we had, uh, I was talking to Bill about the numbers and the big difference in this two point uh, billion, two point oh five billion or so, is more graphic novels being sold. Mm. So it could be that a lot of that is independent graphic novels. Sure, some of it is definitely Marvel and DC. You know, we can assume, or, or we can assume it's a certain number around that of sixty percent or whatever. But, but that ability to to get out and really make independent art uh, in comic books is giving people like inspiration to really do stuff. And I, and I think maybe that's where the movies actually have the most positive effect is people are realizing like, Oh, well, yeah, sure. Marvel's great. But the best thing that I can do is do something on my own, sell it on my own, become rich on my own <laughs> and, and also get to see the creative um, vision that you have come to life while working with someone. I mean, that sounds like a win-win to me. You know what I'd be really interested to know is sort of what are the inroads that readers are taking to get into, you know, apparently all this new buying that's happening. Because um, clearly, like we've been talking about, like Marvel and DC are losing ground in terms of the percentage of their market share. And there's more volume being sold than there were, you know, at least in the past couple of years, if not at mm. the peak peak of the industry. So like, how are these readers coming in? Because I, I definitely think as a reader, the value proposition of a graphic novel and specifically an original graphic novel is probably better at this point than, you know, a single issue of a random Avengers comic. And for reasons that a lot of people have talked about, but like, number one, it's hard. It, this is always a double-edged sword because I don't necessarily believe this, but it is hard to play catch up to the story. And like, yes, that is one of the great pleasures of getting into it, especially as a kid is like, you want to do all the research and figure out the nooks and crannies and all that. Mm. But by the same token, like in an increasingly immediate gratification culture, is that still attractive to a 13 year old? I don't know, but I would assume it's increasingly less attractive. Um, and if you look at like what are big things in media right now, you know, video games and bingeable television series, a graphic novel fits right into that. Like it's a world that you can inhabit for an extended period of time and you don't need to do any homework. You're just in it and it's got everything you need. And it's that's never going to be as visceral as a movie or a video game or whatever, you know, any of these media that more blast you in the face. But again, there has to be trends with the way that people are consuming media. And just from a totally uninformed viewpoint, I would assume, you know, buying a graphic novel is just just feels like a better value proposition. You're getting this full experience. And especially in a world of runaway inflation that we're living in right now, it's like, do you want to make a commitment to, you know, dropping four dollars on a comic indefinitely in order to follow the story? Or do you want to have one set price for one big story? And, and you know what's really, really sad is in the end, we just run a, <clears throat> a serialized um, media gets such a bad rap 
you know, mm. from Star Trek to comic books to comic comic strips, anything any creator soap has, operas. soap exactly. Oh, soap operas get it the worst. So it, it's it's, but it's the backbone of the economy that gives you all the rest of this art, mm. like something that's going to show up on the on the leaderboard, you know, on the on the profit sheet and keep the lights on. We 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 shit on that so often. You know, but, but I'm about to do it again. So here we go. Um, <laughs> the thing that's so fucking whack about it is no one can ever die. Nothing can actually ever change. And people have said that ad nauseum, but really try to metabolize it. Trying to get somebody into something over and over and over again until they get tired of it is a totally different business model, uh, than the other. And also it's a different story model. When I pick mm-hmm. up a graphic novel, some of which by my man, uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, I've read some of his books. And expected a motherfucker to make it to the end, and they don't. And they will never <laughs> come back. They are dead yeah. as fuck, and it hurt when they died. And he drew yeah. the fuck out of it. And you're just like, damn, that's fucked up. And you feel something that I'm sorry, Peter Parker melting yeah. into fucking ashes never could make me feel. Some people die fucked up deaths. You know what I mean? These these more real visceral stories are impossible when you're moving around indestructible IP pieces in a story. Um, you know, and people do die fucked up deaths, by the way. The, a guy drove his Jeep off of a cliff on accident one time. It landed on um, um, a tree, and the tree stopped him for about 20 minutes. He tried to climb up the tree, and then the tree broke, and he uh, fell into the ocean, and then got... He didn't die there. He got eaten by a shark. So, <laughs> what I'm saying is... <laughs> Shit happens. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy and shit. it should be in comic books. <laughs> God damn. That's one of those things that if you wrote that, people would go, come on, there's no way. Oh. That's the new breed of shark thriller. You got to do a bunch of crazy shit to end up in the water with the shark. Mm-hmm. That, the end up in the water shark isn't even the inside of the incident anymore. You have a whole movie of Die Hard and you jump out the window at the end and you land in a lake and a shark eats you. <laughs> he was on acid, by the way, if I remember correctly. He was on some kind of drug when he drove that, off the thing. So. How, how horrific would that be? Getting all that whole experience, then falling into the ocean, get eaten by a shark on acid? Oh my god, that makes it ten times worse. Jesus. Oh my god. That might be the, the best those, aside ever, Ron. Well, that's you know, fantastic. I was just well, saying, I, like, that's that's my point, though, is like, you can't tell a story like that about Peter Parker. <laughs> But you could have a character die like that in a weird ass graphic novel that you got that you we all wrote together and and it would just be like a cool thing that's in there <laughs> that we got to get away with that maybe I don't know, uh what's his name? Uh the the guy who now also sells weed and makes movies and is very famous uh and he did Green Hornet. I don't know why that's popping into my Kevin head. Smith? Wanna... No, not Kevin no, Smith. No, uh no he's Seth Rogan. Seth Rogan. Seth Rogan. <laughs> I feel the like fact Seth that that Venn diagram went, almost overlapped was funny. Yes, I know Kevin funny. Smith wrote gr- a, a, ver- a draft of Green Hornet, and then it got yep. thrown out, never made. Yeah, huh. yeah. And I'm just saying, Seth Rogen would love to make a scene like we just talked about. <laughs> You're not wrong there. Uh, well, it's it, that kind of gets to this other thing though, is like creator intentions, yeah. and and the tough thing is like I kind of think that this. I think Marvel is a victim of its own success in that what it's done will not be done again. And also they are running out of steam with it. And, you know, they can turn around and in the next two years, totally shove that in my face with a lot of success. But 
ultimately for Marvel or for DC, what they are are owners of characters. That's their bread and butter. Yeah. Like Marvel has Iron Man, Captain America, and all these other lesser characters, Spider-Man, etc. That is what they need to service their ownership rights over those things. They need to be able to put them on all the different merchandise, keep them in the theme parks, keep churning out, you know, movies and cartoons and television shows and whatever. For an independent creator, your bread and butter is your story. Your bread and butter is being able to create something that makes people sit up and take notice. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the prime directive for Marvel and DC. And you have to understand that, like, as a consumer, they are more interested in taking care of their characters than they are in telling you a great story. Those Venn diagrams can and should overlap quite a bit, but they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're just living in a world where, you know, if and when super fa superhero fatigue sets in, I don't know that it's going to be a hard and fast break, but it is going to be that shift from okay, I love these characters, but man, these characters are starting to get exhausting over to, can somebody just tell me a good story? And I think the way that you're seeing the boys really take off in its third season and people coming around to like, holy shit, some of the stuff that they're doing on this show, it's because they don't need to take care of those characters in a way that like is preserving them for longevity and across all quadrants for, you know, families to consume mm -hmm. in various formations. They're just mm -hmm. telling you a really crazy, interesting story. And like, I think that we're going to see that dynamic separate more and more over the coming years. I think what to much to Marty Scorsese's lament, hmm. the best way to counter program a Marvel movie isn't to put out a Merchant Ivory movie about a motherfucker that makes soup and his beautiful handmaid and their love story is to put out a subversive comic book movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to counter program and to put out like the stuff that, um, Marvel and DC and specifically Disney can't or won't do is a whole niche market. I think that really defines the success of everything everywhere all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. that was essentially taking just heaps upon heaps of comic book tropes and saying, Oh yeah, motherfuckers, here's something you'll never do tell a story mm -hmm. about depression and like parents being shitty to their kids because they don't understand. And like, you know, essentially it's a, the whole story is about suicide in a, in a very creative way. And it's like, is Marvel going to do that with Spider-Man? No, probably not. <laughs> probably you know not. What I mean, and it would be yeah. a nightmare if they tried like, frankly, it, it would be it weird. Would, it would be, be weird. very odd. Um, and, and that's what, but here's my question for you guys. Do you think that we would have gotten all of this quality stuff if we had not ever had any Marvel movies? Do you think that expansion of 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 uh, independent comic books and uh, graphic novels would have gotten as big as it is without these movies? Because I think that's what our that's what we're talking about here, right? Oh, but part of, part of me goes, I don't want to be this guy. But, like, do we have any of this if the fucking uh, Incredible Hulk series in the 70s doesn't win an Emmy? A serious <laughs> business. Like, no, like, that's um, a great all question. Of, all it's of a these great attempts, question. All of these attempts to make these things into real, it, 
I mean, we grew up before, you know, in the end, we didn't grow up like some of these people who never, ever saw a serious comic book thing ever. We saw various attempts at sort of camp seriousness and sort of, you know, super, eh, you know, uh, just above an action movie as far as hyper hyperbolic, you know, uh, comic book fare. We, we kind of came up in that era. But there's people who never, it was very hard to get these people to see that these characters could be in a serious story with real beats, like a, a three act or five act script with the Hulk or Spider Man in it. Just it was too much for people's brains for thirty uh, some odd years. Sure. So what you're saying, Ed, is that if it wasn't for Lou Ferrigno, we would have had no Avengers. I mean, he should put that on his table at his signings. This <laughs> <laughs> is really exciting. I started, I started this. You're, you're welcome for the Avengers. That's how he signs in all of his headshots now. You're welcome for the Avengers, Lou Ferrigno. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I mean, Jack McGee, the first supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> I think the serious answer to your question, Ron, is no. Like, clearly, we wouldn't have all this stuff now that we're having. You know, comics wouldn't be having the surge that they're having in the moment without the success of the MCU. Like, I don't think anybody can look at, you know, what Marvel has done, what Kevin Feige has done, the MCU as this media entity, and say, like, oh, that was a bad thing for comic books. I think it might be an unsustainable thing for Marvel. I think you can make the argument that it was a bad thing for DC. Mm. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> but for the industry, I don't know. I think it's complicated. I think that everything Ed is talking about in terms of like creators seeing where their bread is buttered and maybe, you know, feeling like, well, I don't need to be the guy in the thank yous for Captain America 8, you know, 10 years from now um, <laughs> yeah. is probably a real thing. But I don't think that's bad for comics. That might be bad for Marvel, but I don't think that's bad for comics. And, you know, Ed, you're talking about a guy like Daniel Warren Johnson, who, you know, if you mm. if you listen or haven't heard of him, he is... Um, uh, a super dynamic and talented young artist, one of the big young artists in comics right now. Um, if you're reading Daniel Warren Johnson, I, I try to think back, like I got into comics right at the image boom, right? When this whole ethos of like, you know, you can create your own character that's been in your head since you were a toddler, you know, and turn it into a multimedia property like Todd McFarlane with Spawn and to a lesser extent, uh, Eric Larson with Savage Dragon. I got into comics when that was just becoming a reality. And for me, it was really exciting to see that play out. Whereas somebody 10 years older than me got into comics at a time when Batman or Daredevil were at their peak and you grow up thinking like, if only I could see this in a movie, right? Mm. So in, in understanding that variation, think about, you know, if you're a if you're a kid reading comics now, you're no longer reading Batman and going like, oh my God, if only this could come to life. Because you you have you have a cavalcade of different options of what that might look like. But what you might be doing is looking at a guy like Daniel Warren Johnson doing a book like Do a Power Bomb, which is like an occult action comic about, you know, professional wrestling 
And you might be going, well, shit, I've never seen anything even close to that on a movie screen before. I'm rooting for that to become a reality. You know what I mean? So even yeah. like consumer attitudes, I think, have to be changing in a way that us, you know, being old time comic guys, it's never going to be, you know, a total about face. Like, I don't think the vast majority of comic readers are ever going to go fuck Batman and other media because Batman is just cool. Right. 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 But the reality of like, God, if someone could just do this doesn't exist for a teenager who's into comics right now. The reality for them is I want to see some of the weird shit come to life. Yeah. That's where your that's where your money's made. Well, it's it's emblematic of of that when you get to Sandman, bro. Yeah. Like you our whole lives we were like, dude, this is never. This is some of the most comic booky literary shit ever in life. And then even the images that it makes you have, even when you see beautiful images in those books, and some of them are not chock full of great art. They're chock with these great stories done in a utilitarian fashion, which makes mm. them almost more like fascinating on some level. You know what I mean? And then you get like the Frank quietly painted, you know, uh, rare stories of the, of the, the endless and them doing shit. All I'm saying is all the images you get in your mind from reading those comic books and extrapolating the fact that somebody would have the daring to try to put that on the screen is like low key exciting to me, even though I don't really fuck with Sandman like that. I've mm -hmm. read enough of it to know what a Herculean task it would be to really adapt those stories to a visual medium. There's some, or whether, you know, to a film medium. It's, uh, you know, they're trying it and I'm, it's coming out soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's all Ron will say about it. <laughs> it it's That's coming out soon. Well, look, right I look, I looked at the, I watched the, 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 you know, the preview. Um, the trailer and it looks it looks pretty amazing I mean I don't know how they're gonna what the budget was on that thing I don't know how they're gonna pull off making it as cool all the way through a series like that but you know they also made the new Lord of the Rings and it cost like a billion dollars to make like yeah. <laughs> like literally something like a billion dollars it cost to make that TV show and the Wheel of Time is pretty expensive too. All these ones that they're making, it's like they're really they're really going to town. And I'm I'm curious to see if Sandman's going to be a good show or not. Um, I I'm holding my judgment, but we'll see. <laughs> well, I mean, again, the the task is what you know. It's, it's huge. huge. It's, it's insane. It's. I think one one thing that comes out of that discussion is just the reality that Hollywood will always favor adaptations mm -hmm. that's something that goes back to the earliest days of movie making is like taking novels and even taking comics i mean superman was a cartoon in 1941 three years after he first debuted mm -hmm. you know it's like this stuff whether it's books whether it's comics whether it's magazine articles whether it's old fables passed down you know as stories around campfires movies and and now television shows kind of being this weird TV movie hybrid have always favored adaptations. I think we lived through an era when the sheer spectacle, the sheer wish fulfillment of being able to see, you know, the grandest superheroes in the world come to life in a convincing way, sold tickets and like set everybody's imaginations on fire. It's that yeah. often, you know, that often discussed marriage of like, 
CGI coming into its own with all these stories and characters kind of reaching their saturation point in comics, you put the two together and boom, you have the past 20 years of movies. I think once I think I would argue we're past the point now, you know, as we've been talking about, it's like you can watch a television show and it's a billion dollar television show that looks as convincing as any movie that's ever been ever been made. Okay, great. Now, again, the calculus has to change to like, all right, what's something that everybody will recognize that I could just make look cool as shit to, okay, what's something that's going to make people take notice through the static of a hundred adaptations of fantasy and sci-fi? You know what I mean? So it's like, again, just the calculus is shifting away from people love uh, Batman. You said it, Ed, Batman's a bad example, but the calculus is shifting away from people love Batman. Let's do Batman to what's a really attention grabbing story that we can tell in a really weird, wild, unexpected way. I just think that that's more and more what we're going to be seeing. Which, to go back to the thesis of the show here, is probably a good thing for comics because if comics are going to continue to be adapted and if the new rule is find the craziest shit you can, then that means we're going to be starting to see some really crazy shit in comics, which I can appreciate. Yeah. I mean, you know, and for, and, and there's a market for it. There's 40% of a $2 billion market for your crazy shit. So this should be encouraging to anybody out there who's listening and you're a storyteller or an artist and you want to do something like go and do it because there's 40% of a 2 billion market waiting for you to grab a part of it. So, well, well, okay. So as we round out here, I'd like to throw this out to the panel. Obviously we've talked about the 40%, but we still got to deal with the 60%. Now we talked about what's going to happen among all these people trying to do these crazy things to be part of the 40%. Okay. If you are the 60%, what are you doing? To try to creep it back up to 80 like it was in them good old days. Cause you know, these Max Shreks up in these businesses are thinking <laughs> how they can do that. And I just want to give them some free tools because I want to, I want to help corporatism. I just have to throw in there 2%. That's not growth. That's a mild swelling. <laughs> <laughs> this business is barely tumescent. Uh, but yeah, so, so, so the bottom line is. <clears throat> Okay, you own all these characters, and but you're losing market share, right? Pop quiz, hotshot. What do you do? I want to pro- propose it to each of you. Like, mm-hmm. what do you do if you know you're losing and you know that you can't kill your characters or or do too much more to them? I mean, you tried to make a Latina Batgirl and then Discovery bought you and slammed it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, there's just so much shit going on with these companies because, like, and and you know, obviously. This isn't some like rooting for anybody. I just you're you're in the corporate seat. You yeah. you have to try to wrest some of this control that you're ceding to these more adventurous markets. Like, what do you do? Is it about adapting lower tier characters? Is it about establishing divisions that do hella low budget shit that's like R rated that could blow up like nobody or something? But with mm. say the Punisher or somebody somebody way cooler and less radioactive than the Punisher, you know. Are you talking about, so you're talking about on the movie and TV side rather than on the comic side when you ask, uh, what are you going to do? Part of me goes both. I, some of the, I'm just saying, some of the comic books I see, they're not really trying to out-adventure the small guys in literary form to me. 
No, I mean, you know, I'm more of a DC guy in terms of what I follow the machinations of. And I see right now in DC Comics, you know, their whole big summer event seems to be about really embracing, you know, legacy heroes. So it's Superman's son and a new Wonder Woman and Batman's son. And like they're trying to create this generational aspect that you cynically would think is like, well, this is very convenient if they ever do get a cinematic universe up and running. Now that that's how you recast or keep it going, mm-hmm. you know, through throughout that. And meanwhile, on the Marvel side, yeah, it seems to be some combination on the comic side of Marvel, at least it seems to be some combination of like bring certain things in line with the movies um, that look like the movies. So, you know, your Captain America's your Thor's, et cetera, or push it in a new direction that completely upends everything you thought you knew, such as what they've done, like with the X-Men franchise. Um, I don't know if any of that's going to be successful, to be honest with you. And on Mm -hmm. the movies, on the movie side of things, like the movie and TV side of things, I don't know, man, like this is where I genuinely would be flummoxed if I was an executive for either Marvel or Warner brothers, because I think for the way that they've done business, the fatigue is real. And like, you're seeing the culling of all those CW superhero shows right now. Mm -hmm. You know, that is, that is essentially gone, even though some are already on still on the air, Uh, you know, discovery bought, um, Warner brothers, HBO max and a bunch of other things. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, Well, well, the word on the street is that basically by doing that, they've been scrapping every, uh, scripted show so that they could just do unscripted shows mm-hmm. and they're pretty much going to scrap everything that costs money <laughs> yeah and do stuff that costs no money but also makes them money well, they, well that's what they did for tbs and tnt and they and, they're also in the process of dismantling perhaps hbo, HBO max, max so that they can do their own streaming yeah i i proposed maybe they would bundle it together or something but it seems like discovery might be ruthless enough to be like now fuck that max shit no so so david zaslav um no we're getting really into the weeds but david zaslav is the new ceo of of warner brothers discovery he was the ceo of discovery channel for a number of years and he was the ceo of discovery through the time when they ruthlessly expanded to dominate cable. So it's like he was the guy that turned Discovery Channel into the Shark Week channel. And he was the guy that turned TLC into the My 600 Pound Life channel. And he was <laughs> the guy that turned Animal Planet into the Finding Bigfoot channel. Right? This is the guy who's now running Warner Brothers. Um, <laughs> that ain't in the weeds. That's in the forest with Bigfoot, motherfucker. <laughs> that, yeah, that's but a, I mean, that's integral information. <laughs> no, no, and it, it's it's worth knowing this if you're oh. you know if you're a casual enjoyer of this stuff is like that guy became one of the most celebrated CEOs in all of media by essentially slashing and burning all budgets. And building up cable networks on the back of sensationalistic reality schlock. And the other thing about producing reality shows that I know very well is that they're all non-union. So you can get away with a lot more shit, which is going to continue to be a big issue in the entertainment industry if Discovery starts to go down this road. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, the economics are kind of unassailable at this point. You literally spend 
more than, if, if you track this, more than 10 times less money to produce the same amount of content of re- in, in unscripted than you do in scripted. And you get essentially the same viewership numbers. Yeah. At least that's been true in television, both broadcast and cable for the past 30 years. So you spend 10 times less money to get the exact same return in viewership. From a dollars and cents standpoint, again, it's unassailable. So I don't know what that means to premium scripted content, but I do know from rumblings in the industry that David Zaslav showed up and started looking at the amount of money that they were spending on things that were not making as much money for them as something like Naked and Afraid on Discovery Channel <laughs> and is like, what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah, it's, it's called art, bro. <laughs> money on art, you, you piece of shit. But then, but then that's what I'm saying. Look what said, we're defending as art. Go ahead and hire me. Go ahead and I hire just, me. I want to be, want to be hired. I'm just, I'm just saying, look what we're defending as art. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's like, you, you dare to cut... Uh, my short pants boy needs to grow into Nightwing, and now don't cancel my Titans. Or yeah, you know I mean it's it's so brutal. And okay, but but ne- nobody answered the fucking question. And I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try because I've been thinking about it because I threw you guys to the wolves. But uh, do you do you have what you would do, Ron? Well, the funny thing is, I I I want to answer the comic book side uh-huh. because I I think this is a little more uh, a little more interesting. I and I'm I'm going to say something weird. So for the most part, DC Comics has been kind of left alone to do the shit that they do. There's DC Films and and all that stuff, but the comic books have been kind of left like, okay, go ahead and do whatever you're fucking doing, comic book company, as long as you make money, I don't really give a shit and we keep our IP awesome, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's actually going to, in the long run, be good for DC to be able to tell some weird-ass stories and probably come up with some new IP. And I think that Disney is going to... They have... The way Disney operates, they control everything. And and look, they make good products. I'm not going to pretend they don't. But they also get their fingers into stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that Marvel Comics actually falls off as far as quality storytelling and coming up with new characters like Miss Marvel was and stuff like that uh, as time goes on as compared to DC Comics. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen because I feel like their corporate um, overlord of Disney is sort of more looming um, than even probably Discovery is when it comes to something like comic books. I mean, I, we'll find out. But it could also be even worse. It could also be that, like, he's like, yeah, that doesn't make us enough money. Let's just stop making comic books. Hmm. Yeah, see, I, I agree with you that that, because that's where I was kind of going with my answer of what I would, in a in an ideal world where I got either one of these jobs <clears throat> to do any of this jazz. It just seems like if I'm if I'm Disney, it's going to be harder for me to do my plan, which would be to have, like, different imprints as far as film and even if i want to pair certain comic book imprints or certain graphic novelists i steal from their their life of like almost making a hit i'm like no okay you almost made a hit by yourself you're almost daniel warren johnson but you're not quite that son 
So come on over here and do this Batgirl story that I've been thinking of since I was 12. And do your thing with it, blah, blah. And we're going to do this for $7 million and have hardcore Indonesian fucking street fights and shit. And people get their eyes gouged out and shit. But we're going to spend a penny on it so Big Daddy doesn't come fuck with us. And just start doing little micro, really aggressive, uh, action-oriented or horror-oriented cheap shit with DC characters. And not try to approximate so many of the, of the, of the superhero stuff on the cheap level. I would leave the superhero stuff for over $100 million things that we really invest in. And, but I would also try to keep them somewhat separate because I think DC going, trying to get the interlaced universe together is, is they don't do it. Like you, you just said it. You just said it, Ron, beautifully. Disney in 50 years, uh, Kamala Khan's going to look exactly like she looks right now. In mm. 50 years. And mm. that's Disney. That's Disney. You know what I mean? So that's that's kind of my just contribution to it. I don't know any answers either. But what I would do if I was DC, I would use some of their more violent, fucked up characters and their more violent, fucked up corporate culture, frankly, and do violent, fucked up small things with comic book IP and hope one of those blows up and is the new John Wick or the new nobody. I'd make Batgirl into fucking John Wick. And that would be a cash cow that I would make... Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on you know what i'm saying i think there's i think there's a good point you're making in there which is that like not everything has to be a blockbuster franchise mm-hmm. i think i think batgirl treads this weird line where it's like technically that is the batman ip mm-hmm. so you can't really say that that shouldn't be a blockbuster franchise because as part of Batman, it is and should be in corporate think. But you you can and should 100% make a $5 million question movie or Sandman, not the Morpheus Sandman, but the old mm. Golden Age gas okay. mask Sandman. Let's call, let's call it Lady Shiva series then, because basically sure. that's, that's, that's the most interesting yes. thing to me. Uh, and Lady Shiva crosses over with the question. So you have a nice little franchise of the question doing his shit, blah, blah, blah. He meets up, uh, Lady Shiva comes out like Black Panther in Civil War, whoops his ass a little bit. We go, who the fuck is this bitch? We get us a spinoff movie with, with Lady Shiva. And then later on, a Hobbs and Shaw with question of Lady Shiva. And she- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now we're all going back to tentpole blockbuster land, but sure. Hey, hey, damn it, it. I'm a corporation. Well, I was just going to bring that up, Ron. That's a great yeah. point. Like, yeah. DC's kind of already doing this because if you put Peacemaker and the the super pets movie next to each other i mean what is that other than just them looking at their characters and going let's lean into the strength of the character itself and fuck the whole idea of you know a shared continuity i think that's smart and i think i think almost their big ip their superman batman wonder woman captain marvel like their their true blue superhero characters are a little bit their albatross at this point because there is such an expectation that, well, that should function the way that Marvel has functioned. And like, they just can't get that going. But Peacemaker leaning into being like an outrageous R rated comedy and DC super pets leaning into, I mean, let's do a a Disney level, all ages animated action feature. I think those are two 
Wow, chef's kiss decisions on Warner Brothers' part. But maybe we're dodging the question in regards to Disney. Like, if you had to work within that structure, I think fucking uh, Marvel, Miss Marvel is a key ingredient. Yes, they yep. forced her to be part of the X Clan. If you know, mm. you know. Mm. Yes, they did that as a corporate synergy point. But otherwise, besides the fact that she worships Captain Marvel, and we have that 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 uh, cameo, it it's away from all of that. And I think it it does well to be that. Whereas I feel like Moon Knight was away from all of that, and it didn't. I don't know. It didn't I? I didn't like fucking Moon Knight. Fuck it. I'm not gonna have relitigate that. But no, like, I'm, I'm I liked Miss Marvel. I liked Miss Marvel, and it felt more like unmoored from the from having to be in continuity. But it's more yeah. in continuity than Moon Knight is. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think the strategy is necessarily off for Marvel. You know, this idea of like. Let's just ultra diversify. Let's give, let's make something for literally everybody. Because, you know, for the longest time, Marvel made its bones on like blockbuster summer event movies. Like we are just going to fucking hone that to its peak. And they did. And like they released the highest grossing movie of all time, killed their biggest character. Well, killed both their two biggest characters, really. Mm hmm. And it's like, well, fuck, what do you do after that? I think the idea of let's make a little something for everybody is not a bad one. I think that where that gets in trouble is that they try to have their cake and eat it, too. Like, we're going to make a smaller scale, little something, but for a bunch of different types of people. But also, it's all going to hang together into one cohesive whole. I don't know if the second part of that is really happening. And I would imagine that as they try to make everything hang together into one cohesive whole, you're going to get a lot less snackable niche bites. Um, you know, as they build everything up to Secret Wars and the Kang Dynasty, I think we're going to be seeing less of like, oh, you know, just a nice little uh, teen coming of age story next to a weird supernatural god story next to this pastiche of 1950s television you know what i mean like i think they're gonna ramp back up into being swiss watch summer action blockbusters yeah um but i think we're kind of living we're living through this period right now where they are thinking they can be both things and they're not really doing a good job of it, but I think they're going to course correct that. I mean, mm. it's a revolution in TV, you know, this, the whole Disney plus and the whole streaming situation. It's really only like five or six years old. None of these streaming services are making the amount of money that they were making by either selling ads on TV shows or collecting box office receipts for big, big budget movies. Like, yeah, they and, just and, aren't. And on top of that, like, with uh, what looks like a recession coming up and inflation doing what it's doing, how many people are going to start dropping, you know, oh, I had six streaming services that I was paying for. Well, now I got to go down to two. And yeah. who are they going to choose? You and it's, a, I mean? it's a funny parallel between people's pull lists at the store and yes. the streaming services. It's a <laughs> funny parallel. Those there are books that get man, motherfucker. She Hulk must have got canceled five times during recessions. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like people being like, I, I just can't buy She Hulk no more, man. I, I had it, I like it, but if I'm a pick between all the rest of these, she got to go. See, and it's interesting for me because you know I I think about that, and and for me, yeah, you know Disney Plus 
has so many of my favorite characters. But then at the same time, like all the stuff that HBO Max has that's not DC is so much more attractive. And so in a head to head, like I'm picking HBO Max every time, even though I think a lot of the DC film output is garbage because I don't want to just be stuck with something I've watched 15 times before, you know, just because it's my comfort character or whatever. It's like the, the overall variety matters. And I don't know. That's why that's what I think is kind of happening in the comic book market too. It's like, you're just seeing more of a demand for variety than you are for the same old thing rehashed again. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's like variety is like when they have, you know, like 57 types of ham. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, right. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Got so many that we got. We got a bocolo, but a capicola. We got got all these different types of fucking shaved meats, but they're all shaved meats. (laughs) But that's what I mean. Like the the DC and Marvel strategy for volume has always just been, we're going to give you eight Batman titles. We're going to give you five (laughs) Spider-Man titles, you know? If you don't Spider-Man, like Web of Spider-Man, like definitely check out Amazing Spider-Man. It's a totally <laughs> different experience. <laughs> yeah. It's very uh, uh, but well, I think I think we have um we've we've definitely uh, explored the concept and thank you for taking this uh, journey with us. It harkens back to some of our Patreon episodes at patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod, where we have talked about which streaming services will we drop and uh, Ron's definitely I'm with you, Bill. I'm an HBO Max guy, Ron's a uh, a comfort blanket Linus guy yeah i guess (laughs) and it just it is what it is though because i think if i like star wars more i'd be on ron's side on that one you know because you know but in the end 40 percent. i think we should leave this conversation with that there's 40 percent of motherfuckers who are really getting after it and they're taking market share from some of the biggest these 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 perennial huge companies that have been beating people's ass for years i think uh that that is that is heartening and I hope it's a it's a it's a boon for the future. And I hope we can uh, join those forty percent. Yeah, especially uh, you know we're doing our comic books and doing our books and shit. Let's get out there and get some of this graphic novel money, baby. I'm telling you, man. Here's here's a bold prediction. I think in the next twenty years, you will see the highest grossing movie of all time, Mark, broken by a non corporate comic book adaptation, by an adaptation of something that isn't you know Avengers Justice League related. I oh, so. I, that's fucking bold, and I, I second it because you're you would have something that became a phenomenon because it had a sellable and marketable story, most likely a sellable and marketable art style to go along with that, which means it has a good visual design for all the concept artists and shit, and it stands out out of the pack without all this corporate uh, help, which yep. means it's unique. So it has, those are your, I, I, I guess there's th- there's three sections for like just guaranteed. And, uh, and shit, if kids can come to it, <laughs> it's going to blow the fucking doors off. So I, I think you're definitely right. And uh, I hope one of our listeners makes it and uh, chips us off a check for inspiring them with this episode. <laughs> drop us down a couple of shekels. And, uh, and if you don't want to drop some shekels on our Patreon, please give us a dope ass five star review for how we made you feel today. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to another marvelous distinguished competition episode of (laughs) the greatest oh